Welcome to The Herd Mentality, an eclectic weekly mix of atheistic and humanistic conversations with complete strangers. I've never met them and they've never met me, but we're throwing caution to the wind, taking a risk with a dodgy internet connection, and God willing, get an interesting conversation for you to listen to. I'm your host, Questionable Adam, at Adam Reeks on Twitter, and it's time to meet our guests. Ladies and gentlemen, down the line with me is... uh Long-time caller, first-time listener, Dave Hawks. How are you, sir? I'm good, thanks, Adam. I, I'd almost forgotten that you ran a show. Uh, <laughs> let, have you been to uh, HerdMentalityPodcast.com by any chance? I, I have, but, you know, I've got a short attention span, and if I'm not on every month, <laughs> I lose interest. <laughs> Life's too short. Life's too short. Dave, uh, you're a real doctor, aren't you? I'm a PhD scientist, yes. Ah, now there's a distinction between the two. Well, there is, and I, I sort of I did a piece for you uh, a little while back about you know doctors and and what that constitutes. And generally, most people think of there's a medical doctor they do ten, eleven years, and then there's a PhD doctor. But as I sort of pointed out, there are other people that can use the title doctor. Yes, and uh, we're not talking about my new favourite Twitter friend uh, Susan Shumsky, who is a doctor in divinity, because uh, that's a is. The, that's a, even less than a 15-minute degree, I think. I, I had a bit of a look at this, and it just, it's, it's like anything. It depends. Like, there is actually, apparently, a real doctor of divinity you can get from certain, you know... Yep, quite, we've got him on the yeah. line now. Hello, Dave. This is Deepak. Deepak Comfort, <laughs> Masters of, of the universe. universe. Beautiful. That'll make it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so in terms of doctors, you, would, you know, there's all the um, the people that can buy them off the back of a, a Wheaties packet. There was a, a woman called um, Gillian McKeith mm-hmm. who was did a TV show, massive TV show in the UK for a number of years called "You Are What You Eat," and she put the people everything they'd eaten for like a week on a table and go, "You're fat. You're going to die." Then her other thing was she loved analysing their poo. Um, <laughs> you know, I think it was for possible medical reasons but we're not really sure doesn't she have um, a ps4 this is something you can be doing with your time other than sort of sifting through some uh king richard the thirds yeah I, I don't know but someone a guy called ben goldrake i think it was that looked up where she was dr Gillian mckeith and looked up and her phd was from an unaccredited college in the u.s done by correspondence and essentially appears to be a 35 page pamphlet so she's actually had to stop using Dr. Gillian McKeith, and she also said she was part of these big associations in the uh, the US, and they're very prestigious. And again, Dr. Uh, ben Goldacre uh, managed to get his dead dog to become a member of one of those with nothing more than a, a credit card and an internet connection. Um, so somebody so, in, uh, on Twitter the other day, he's based in Germany, mentioned to me it's illegal in Germany to use the term doctor if you're not a doctor in australia a few years ago they they changed some of the rules and so it's not a really protected title so you can get people like you know chiropractors dentists vets osteopaths i've seen optometrists and physiotherapists also use the title doctor and as long as they say doctor you know steve smith physiotherapist or dr steve smith osteopath you seem to be able to get away with it it's something we're looking to clarify because i I had a chat about chiropractic um, which is a nice lead into what we were going to talk about Mm -hmm. the other day and i had a friend who goes well chiropractor is a medical doctor that specializes in the spine do they well that's the because you see someone who's doctor and you get money back on your health insurance and stuff and it's essentially to be a, a chiropractor in australia and i think it's pretty similar in terms of 
length in the US is, is about five years. Now, to, to put it into context, as I've got a PhD and that generally takes seven to nine years, I'm also not allowed to practice. I can't go and open an office and say, hi, I'm Dr. Dave, I will fix you of whatever. It's um, kind of illegal. Mm. Uh, and to become a medical doctor, even like a general practitioner, that's about 11 years. And if you become a surgeon or, or something specialised, it's, it's even longer. So what you're looking at for chiropractors, they do five years of study and then they can walk out, rent a room and start practising as a chiropractor. And they need to do 25 hours of continuing professional development per year. And only half of that has to be formal. So they can say that they've spent 12 and a half reading stuff and that that's their professional development. And it's not that much different from doctors. But again, doctors have 11 years where they're supervised and they're, before they can actually go out on their own. So that, that's sort of where the difference lies. And I think that what you do is with a doctor, there's, there's always a group of doctors. A lot of chiropractors practice by themselves. And so if you start to go off on a tangent as a medical doctor, you'll be reined in because as a medical doctor, you have to send things to pathology or you have specialists. And if the specialist comes back and go, yeah, you've really misdiagnosed this or you've missed something, then the doctor can incorporate that into a practice. Whereas Chiros don't have that because they they don't refer somebody to an orthopedic surgeon. They just treat it with chiropractic. Mm. So you've written an open letter titled yeah. uh, the, the Need for Chiropractic Adverse Events Reporting System in Australia. Yeah, so um, I wrote this with Joe Benamou. This was, um, we were talking about vaccination last time we were on mm. and uh, we were talking actually about this letter when we said we'd written a paper together. And the third author is a guy called John Cunningham who's actually a spinal surgeon. So he supplies the brains of the the, the, the technical expertise I supplied, the, Joe and I supply the research. So what happened was a couple of, I think it was nearly a year ago, a baby turned up at a, an emergency room in, in Melbourne um, with a broken spine, so a, a broken neck. The baby survived and it was all okay, but the doctor said this baby had been treated by a chiropractor and that the chiropractors likely could have actually broken the spine because the manipulation had been in that area. There is, in fact, no evidence that manipulating a, a growing mobile spine like a baby's will do anything other than, than risk. And so this all went through a whole variety of different stages. But what happened was one of the heads of one of the chiropractic associations came out and said, chiropractic is very safe. There's been no adverse events on children by chiropractors anywhere uh, since nine, and no reports of this since 1992. And I just thought that's a bit weird. I mean, we get reports of tomatoes causing problems. You get caught people <laughs> drinking too much water. And, and for something which is cracking your spine for 20 years not to actually have any, any side effects, I thought was just highly unlikely. Uh, and then I worked out why. There's no system for reporting events in Australia. Right. So I looked at the literature and I found only 18 papers around the world in the last 20 years that looked at side effects of chiropractic. As a little bit of a side issue, it was quite enlightening because every major side effect was reported by someone who was not a chiropractor, so a medical doctor, whereas all the minor effects were nearly all chiros. Mm. Um, and we found a study there which had, in Canada, they looked at 10 years of chiropractic. Millions of, you know, they've got about 3,800 chiros in Canada and they looked at all these manipulations over 10 years and they looked at side effects and things. And they, they found 20, I think it was 23 strokes that were highly likely, beyond doubt, beyond reasonable doubt, that were caused by chiropractic. So yeah, the stroke, at, as in blood clot. Yeah, as in, in um, 
reduction of blood to the brain. Right. And a lot of that's to do with, and, and this is obviously not my area, but there's, there's two sort of blood vessels, arteries that go through your spine. So if you're snapping, then you can obviously do damage to these arteries and that can result in a stroke. I don't remember the technical details because as I will point out, I'm not a medical doctor, but this was the research. So a couple of strokes a year, we've got roughly the same amount of chiropractors. So there's no way of knowing whether this is happening in Australia, but it suggests that there's a strong possibility that this could happen. And that's all you're looking at. And we've talked about vaccines a lot. In Australia, in the US, in most places, you can just go in line, fill in a form saying, I had a vaccine, I had an adverse event, I had a sore arm, I was nauseous, whatever. And it just goes and it gets logged and they keep an eye on these things to, to try and monitor if you know one vaccine's causing a certain side effect and if that side effect's serious, then they have to maybe stop that vaccine. Mm. The idea is with chiropractic, it's been around for a long time. There's lots and lots of chiropractors. If they were killing people on a weekly basis, it would be really detectable. But if there's sort of one particular movement in a particular sort of condition that is causing trouble, it's going to be nearly impossible to find out. And the reason is, as I said, chiros don't really interact with doctors. So if you go to a chiropractor and you have your neck cracked and you feel dizzy and and vomiting and blurred vision and slurred speech at home the next day, who are you going to go and see? A real doctor. Well, yeah, you're going to go to the emergency department. Hmm. So the emergency department has no way of feeding back to chiros because they're not part of that system. So the idea, and one of the things we've suggested in chatting to people is that when you go and have a, uh, you go to a hospital and they say, you know, have you seen a health practitioner in the last week? That could include chiros, traditional Chinese medicine, normal doctors, anything. You tick the box and if you kind of, you know, you've had a chiro and they can just log that. And if you've had a neck manipulation and you've had a stroke, they can investigate it. Mm. If you've had a chiro and they've, you know, they've cracked your spine and then you've been in a car accident, while they may both result in spinal injuries, they're really not going to be connected. No. The other article you sent me, the other open letter, pharmacological examination of TCM being traditional Chinese medicine should be evidence-based. Talk me through it. I spent three years in a pharmacology department at Melbourne University researching and a little bit of it's rubbed off about how people look at drugs and how they're tested and things like that. And traditional Chinese medicine, in fact, any herbal medicine is a drug. It's, it's the same as any. The difference is it's not purified. So I sort of keep an eye on the, the topic and there was a review. This The journal that it came out in, um, Trends in Pharmacological Science, it's a really good journal. And they published a review, so an analysis of you know how best to approach looking at traditional Chinese medicine from a pharmacology standpoint. And I read it, and as we've discussed, there's certain words that should not appear in a scientific concept, and the word magical is one of them, <laughs> which is how they describe some of the diagnostic techniques. And they said, you know, they're very hard to quantitate and, you know, the, the powers are almost, the powers can be philosophical, even magical. Right. So what's, the, I, what's the active drug then in powdered tiger penis? Um, spermazoan. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> actually, we, we sort of did touch on that. And, and this was, again, I wrote this with Joe, and she, she gave me a great link, which we've included in the paper. And, you know, I'll go into the pharmacology stuff in a minute. But some of the big issues with traditional Chinese medicine that you don't really need to have any scientific basis to understand are that there's really quite a lot of it is contaminated with either bacterial or or sort of pathogen contaminants or heavy metals because a lot of it's just sort of grown in parts of China that may they don't really have the sort of the environmental protections that we do in in places like Australia and the Mm. US so next to the the, apple factory yeah (laughs) (laughs) well next to the offshoot of the waste from the apple factory (laughs) and this is this is a continuing thing and this has been published a number of times so 
So you kind of have issues with what you're taking being contaminated. The other thing is that, as you said, you're talking about tiger penis. There's a lot of traditional Chinese medicines that come from endangered species. And it's such a big issue that even places like the Journal of Chinese Medicine, and you can probably guess that they're supporters of traditional Chinese medicine, they've actually run campaigns saying that, you know, we've got to stop using these things because we're actually damaging our environment by, you know, whether it be turtle or tiger penis or or whatever the... The, the particularly rare Beaches. ingredient is. Mm. Yeah, in, in terms of like what, what we wrote this letter about was, yeah, the, the magical stuff pissed me off. But it was also that I know I come across, you know, and I often say evidence-based medicine, and I'm often quite critical of alternative therapies, but with traditional Chinese medicine, as I said, it's a drug, and herbal remedies are a fantastic source of new drugs and new things. I mean, everyone's very familiar with, you know, the fact that willow bark has been used for 4,000 years and you chew it and it relieves pain and fever. And that's been isolated and is modified and is what we now know as aspirin. Mm-hmm. There's another one I came across that was potion made on the hillsides of Samoa that they used to treat a diet, disease that we'd probably call hepatitis. And when they looked at the potion and they looked at the bark it was made from, they actually found an ingredient, a single ingredient that they are now about to start clinical trials as a treatment for HIV. Oh, wow. Because HIV hides in cells. It's very good at sort of hiding. And this drug can make the virus come out of the cells and then it's more available to traditional drugs. And like this is herbal stuff and venoms are an amazing way of finding new new drugs. And I think they started with 808 traditional Chinese medicines. And after 15 years, they managed to develop a, a single pharmacological agent for treating malaria. And it's a cracker. Oh, wow. So, but the catch is, I, I've been to your house, I've been to the, sh- the, the Chateau Reeks, and um, <laughs> you, you've got a kitchen, so I assume you've cooked on occasion? Uh, on occasion, yes. You ever cut into an onion? Yes, it's an yeah. emotional experience. It is, and it isn't. Some days I've, I cut into an onions, and, you know, my eyes are watering for 15 minutes, and it's horrendous. Other days it's like, yeah, it's not too bad. Hmm. And it can be the same species of onion. It can even be from the same farm, because... The amount of active ingredients in plants and, and in their seeds or, or their fruits varies depending on a whole variety of ranges from the time of the season, the time of the day, all sorts of bits and pieces. So if you get a herb, you don't know how much of your active ingredient is in there. Or how much lead. Or how, or how much lead. And the other thing is we looked at this particular traditional Chinese medicine treatment that they talk about in the paper called compound danchen formula mm. um which i just love saying look <laughs> like, can i have a crack at it yeah compound danchen formula i think it's just more punches compound danchen <laughs> formula um and it's made up of three herbs and one of them only one of them I, I was managed to find information on and this herb contains at least 70 biologically active compounds now what dose they're in is obviously unknown but there's three different herbs so you're probably looking well over 100 at least and someone isolated what they think were the active ingredients from these three herbs and it was the three ingredients strangely enough from only two of the herbs the other one didn't actually produce anything and when this sort of compound danchan formula is thought to have an effect on on blood pressure and when they put it into a test with animals and they gave them either this the whole formula with the three full herbs or they gave these three isolated ingredients there was no statistical difference in the effect. Like you could almost replicate the effect with just three instead of over 100 ingredients. Wow. And that's fantastic because you can isolate them. You don't have 97 other ingredients that could cause side effects. Exactly. In- so outstanding work. Let's uh, shuffle along to homeopathy because uh, 
I'm a big fan. Yeah, I guess I always have to do this because I've, I'm, I'm really surprised at how many people get homeopathy and naturopathy confused. So homeopathy is essentially there's two laws, and I use the word laws <laughs> very, very loosely. They're just a theory, Dave. Come on. <laughs> yeah, they are. These are just a harebrained theory from 200 years ago. It was that the law of similar, so you think about onions, if you have watery eyes, then something that causes watery eyes can fix that. So if you've got watery eyes, maybe you can have essence of onion. So that's the first idea. The second idea is the law of infinitesimal. So... Yeah, so watery eyes, like cures like. Yeah, so the other one is law of infinitesimals. And there's a bit of a pragmatic reason for this. And, and the idea is the more you dilute it, the stronger something gets. Because obviously, if you have something that gives you the symptoms of mercury poisoning and you give someone mercury, it's <laughs> going to kill them. Yes. Although there is, a, there is a great chemist who started it like the book of chemistry. It was in Bill Bryson's History of Absolutely Everything started at A and just started sampling everything all the way through the chemistry book. He got about three letters in and it made himself quite ill and so he just decided to stop. <laughs> but I just love that. It's, it's, you know, that is real science. That's also real balls. Well, um, let's talk real science for a second because now I'm speaking anecdotally here. I seem to remember reading something about peanut allergies and the thinking behind a peanut allergy is it's, quite simply an over-response to something that isn't dangerous to the body. That's why people have allergies. One of the ways of countering this was to begin introducing finite, like tiny amounts of the active ingredient in a peanut that causes the response over a period of time and building up a, a resistance to it to show the body that it's actually not dangerous. I guess one of the things with that is that that's exactly, you know, my knowledge of immunology, that's exactly what peanut allergy is. And they changed the rules in Australia a few years ago. And it used to be, you know, don't give them these things that are likely to cause allergies like peanuts and that till after the child's one. And they actually did some studies and they've changed the recommendations so that you actually start giving the kids these foods between four and seven months. Mm-hmm. And the idea is because your body learns and it learns that certain things are you and certain things are foreign. And it tries to get rid of the foreign things and it accepts the things that are you or are normal. So foods and, and things like that. And, you know, I mean, the, the whole, you know, like cures like in terms of peanuts and peanut allergies. Vaccines is another one because you're giving a small amount of something so that you're prepared and for when you get a big amount of the, the pathogen. Mm. And yet there's some merit in like versus like. And when it was sort of first, I think it was first announced in 1805, but he thought of it about six or seven years beforehand, a guy called Samuel Hanneman, who was a doctor back then. This this is when medicine was using leeches and bleeding. So it wasn't a bad idea. But the problem is it's 200 years ago. We've kind of moved on from there and we have a great thing called a clinical trial. So with homeopathy, when I say that they dilute them, um, you're talking about one drop of the essence of onion in the universe. That would be the sort of dilution we're looking about. Right. <laughs> Yeah, so there's a whole bunch of chemistry based on Avogadro's number and the amount of molecules in a gram and things like that. So essentially, there's actually none of the original ingredient in the solution you get as homeopathy. And it's generally either given to you in a, on a sugar pill or in something containing alcohol. But it works. Homeopathy works relatively well. As a placebo. Thank you. Yes, as a placebo. <laughs> it's, uh, it's got an incredibly strong placebo effect, like anything does. But it's combined with the fact that there's nearly no side effects because, well, there's nothing in it. Mm -hmm. But that's not quite true either. Are there not some remedies that, because they're unregulated, 
you, the people are finding all sorts of weird and wonderful ingredients? Oh, yeah. Like if you... Um, I'm talking about homeopathy when it's done correctly. When homeopathy is done <laughs> it's badly... It's done correctly. Dave, come on. Listen to yourself. I'm not saying it works, but this is according <laughs> to their own rules. When they do their homeopathy according to their rules, there's nothing in it. Mm. But there's all sorts of contamination. And there's the other thing is, you know, homeopathy, you're looking at what they call a 30C is often a standard dilution. That's 10 by 10 by 10 by 10 by 60 times. So a big dilution. Whereas they sell things like as a 1X homeopathic dilution, which is just diluted one part in 10. And Mm. that's, well, you could argue that's not actually homeopathy. It's just a weak version of whatever herbal remedy you're doing. And the reason they do it is because homeopathy in a lot of countries has been given a free pass in terms of approval because Obviously, you dilute something billions of times, it's going to have nothing in it. Mm. So they, they look for safety and they're going, well, this is going to be safe. And so a lot of people try and shoehorn things in as homeopathy when actually they're not. Mm. Have, you, have you ever looked at some homeopathic remedies? Uh, yes, my mother was a big fan as I was growing up. Did you ever actually look up what some of them are? All the ones I got for, um, I think when I was five or six i suffered from the bubonic plague or leprosy or something and i got uh, something called a sugar pill yeah didn't work well, my, yeah my favorite is there's um there's a rays of jupiter that's a remedy right. um there's dog feces Yay. and this is why you're kind of going i'm really glad that's incredibly diluted but they use latin names or they use slang names and and so you don't really I think it's like Canon Phoneticus or something. So you could probably guess what it was, but most people might not make that connection. There's x-rays. So there's, um, there's some fantastic How do you remedies. capture an x-ray? Oh, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, Adam? <laughs> that is the question. Uh, unfortunately, I don't do philosophy, so um, you'll have to uh, handball off that to somebody else. Okay. So with homeopathy, because it works as a really strong placebo, um, you have to be very careful with the if you're going to do a clinical trial so you've got to have obviously a placebo control you've got to have randomization so that you're not just giving the homeopathy to the people that are going to get better and you've got to have um blinding so that the, both the practitioner and the patient don't know and when you look at studies that have all of these things um they're all negative for homeopathy so the even the homeopathy when they looked at They've done reviews of homeopathic studies. I can't remember. It might be Vold, W-A-L-D. But, mm. And he looked at all these different homeopathic studies. And he came up with this, give them ratings. And so seven means they've got proper controls, randomization, good amount of people. If you give a homeopathic to one person, then it's, you know, it might not be indicative of what they actually do. And all the ones with the good scores, all the ones that had the blinding and the placebo all came back negative for homeopathy. All the ones with the low scores that had, you know, could introduce bias had positive results for homeopathy. Mm. So my issue with some of this stuff is while there's pros and cons to something like homeopathy is I I got into a little bit of a a heated debate with somebody on the interwebs. Uh, I think you were even tagged in, Dave. Uh, home, at homeopathy works i suggest you check out that account because she was promoting this idea that homeopathy could work to help children with colic now colic is something that you just recover from am i right yep so what's the benefit in taking homeopathy i guess you're actually touching on two things so the first one is colic or a self-limiting illness so you give somebody a homeopathy when they've got a cold Mm -hmm. the chances are if they stay on homeopathy for a week, they will get better. 
if they don't have homeopathy for a week, they will get better. And it'll take, um, yeah, it'll take seven days. But the, the issue I took up with it is that what it's doing is priming these people, which let's refer to them as victims, to view what just happened to them and go, okay, well, I gave my child homeopathy and they recovered. So next time when the kid has acute kidney failure or a brain tumour, they're already in the mindset to go, well, homeopathy helped last time. It should work this time. And off they go. You you raised sort of two points there. The first is the medicalization of disease. And I know that sounds a bit odd, but common colds, bruises, the normal stuff we deal day to day, you don't need to see a doctor for, you don't need to take a pill with. Your body's actually deals with heaps and heaps of stuff every day. And training someone to require a pill for every cough and cold is bad because as you said, like they get a reliance on pills. And, you know, if you're taking 30 or 40 sugar pills a day, then that's obviously not great for the amount of sugar you're taking. And that's not even an extreme case of people taking homeopathy that I've heard of. The other thing is that you say, yeah, it primes them to take homeopathy. And there's a, there's a website called What's the Harm? And they actually list people who've had homeopathy instead of seeking medical advice. There's a couple of well-known cases in Australia. There's a child by the name of Denley, I think was in Melbourne, who had a neurological condition that was associated with epilepsy and they were having fits and the parents were seeing the neurologist but just refused to take them, the, the advice of the neurologist but was taking homeopathy and that was the only treatment but they keep seeing the doctor and the doctor's going you can't put me down as your doctor when your child comes in for seizures because you're not listening to me and that child died uh, then there was um, Penelope Dingle who was in WA who was diagnosed with bowel cancer mm. and her her husband was a environmental toxicologist and at that point I think he was actually also the PhD supervisor of Judy Weilerman who um, we've mentioned before uh, who's an anti-vaccination campaigner and trying to get a PhD in it and they decided to treat with a woman called Fran Scray and Penelope Dingle's cancer with homeopathy Hmm. unfortunately homeopathy to have it work properly you can't take any pain medication so that was an excruciatingly Hmm. painful for her and the cancer went from something that could quite reasonably be treated and, and possibly have a a good outcome to something that essentially killed her. Mm. There's cases of eczema in babies treated with homeopathy. This is in, I think, in Brisbane uh, in the last few years. The homeopathy, that was what they treated with them, and the child died of eczema because it was breaking the skin, infections could get in. And this is what you're talking about. They're trained, in this case, in a couple of cases, it was babies. It was actually the parents who were trained to think that homeopathy could cure anything. And and that's where the damage comes from. If you want to take homeopathy as a cure for a hangover, I don't really care. That's fine. And then when you're sick, you go and see a doctor. And that's how the majority of people use it. But it is a quite a slippery slope. Mm. Righto, Dave, where can we find your articles? The letter on chiropractic is in the Medical Journal of Australia. It's behind a firewall, which is a bit of a pain. But um, if you contact me at Mr. Hawks, uh, I might be able to slip you a, a paper or where you can actually find it. There's also an insight, which is someone's written a, a commentary on our on our letter on the Medical Journal of Australia, so MGA, if you just search MJA, mm-hmm. and that allows comments. So feel free to go on there, have a look, and, and look at some of the comments. The traditional Chinese medicine is a, in a journal called 
trends in pharmacological sciences. And again, that's behind a paywall. But again, if you contact me, I'm going to get these up in uh, in one of my sort of professional CV sites that you can actually just download them and have a look at them. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of homeopathy, uh, if you're ever looking for anything on it, there's a guy called Edzard Ernst, E-D-Z-A-R-D, Ernst, I think it's E-R-N-E-S-T, who was a homeopath who became the first head of complementary medicine, I think it's a professor in, in the UK, and started looking into it and has actually produced lots of great evidence of, of why it doesn't actually work. So it's an example of somebody who was a fan of homeopathy and, and certainly had extensive training in it who started looking at things from an evidence base and sort of changed their views. Hmm. Well, Dave, thank you very much for coming on and giving us a little update on the reality. <laughs> well, I thought it would be a nice change. <laughs> Take care. Thanks for coming on. Cheers, Adam. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Herd Mentality down the line with me from the US, a place where church and state are uh, somewhat befuddled. I've got Mark and Shannon Nebo from com. How are you guys? Excellent, excellent. Fantastic. So what's the premise? What do you do? Why be secular? Well, we actually, um, we started Be Secular from an idea we had when we went to the American Atheist Conference in 2012 which was in D.C., and we were just so moved by all the speakers, and we just wanted to be a part of the movement. And Mark got the idea to start something. He wanted to uh, call it, what, Be Atheist? Yeah, I wanted it to be more atheist-focused, and then Shannon set me on the right track. Right, right, because there aren't quite as many atheists um, as there are just about anything else. And so uh, I told him we we're, you know, drastically limiting our, our vision and our market share by keeping it like that. So we thought, you know, be secular. Exactly. Um, because, because you wouldn't have had people like Mark Sandlin get involved. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Even so, some of the people from like uh, American Humanists or, or the ones that, you know, sometimes are at odds with groups like American Atheists, they may not even associate with such a rigid name. So we, we decided to try to broaden the scope a little. Fantastic. Well, that's marketing at work. So, Mark Sandlin, just briefly, what's the story there? Well, <clears throat> Mark Sandlin is uh, turned out to be m- not just a friend that he like he started out with, uh, but he has been a a good partner in in our mission. He is a uh, Huffington Post blogger, and he also blogs at his own site, the thegodarticle.com. It's like the like the God particle, but oh, without the P. I see what you uh, did there. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, he also is the co-founder of a group called The Christian Left. He bases his ministry around pretty much the good messages that Jesus had and anything that is segregation-oriented or discrimination-oriented or abusive or destructive. His congregation and the other progressive Christians that he associates with, they just chalk that up to tribalism and, and barbaric you know mindsets of the uh of 2000 years ago and they move on to a more uh loving and humanistic and and inclusive mindset basically so he Go would ahead. have a very short version of the bible yes <laughs> i i think that i think that if if you do cut out a lot of things that he does yeah it does get pretty short pretty fast <laughs> the one commandment just just be nice be secular sure. Right, there you go. I yeah, like that. Yeah, that's a good one. Mm. So, All right. Well, I ten percent. 
in the future yeah. will be all mine. <laughs> okay, Mark and Shannon, you've set up Be Secular, but there's actually products and services that are involved here. So what's going on? Uh, well, we sell merchandise that says Be Secular on it, and we allow um, nonprofits and artists and individuals to affiliate with us, and it gives them a fundraising opportunity. Uh, we give up to 50% of our profits to our affiliates, and the customers get to choose who gets that donation. How's it going? Good. It's going pretty well. I think that uh, for being in business only a little over a year, I think we've made a, a pretty good impact on the community. We've helped a lot of groups. We've raised, raised over $1,000 for the for our affiliates so far. Excellent. Um, I also we- saw uh, Gamma Atheist wearing a B-Secular shirt. Yep, yep. He's one of our affiliates, and he, he wears them in almost all of his atheist hangouts at gamatheist.com forward slash hangouts. He interviews some of the, the best people in the community, and he, he's a big supporter of ours. Yes, he is. We all sort of came about meeting each other by the 24-hour podcast-a-thon at secular.fm. Yes, yes, we did. That was an exciting night. Have you recovered? Uh, you know, just. We just <laughs> have actually... Uh, We're a little snowed in over here, and it's been kind of pleasant uh, to not really have anywhere to go or anything to do, and uh, I think we're back to 100% now. Yeah. It was nice to have people like yourself to be able to uh, guest host and and take some of the pressure off Tanner and and David when they uh, were reaching the wee hours of the morning. I'm just fighting the good fight, doing what I can from a different time zone. <laughs> and we appreciate it. Absolutely. So, so what are some of the charities that the money's going to that you can select? Um, there's American Atheists. There's Foundation Beyond Belief. There's Recovering from Religion. There's, gosh, there's so many. Uh, Camp Quest, Black Atheists of America. Secular Student Alliance. Yep, Secular Student Alliance. We love them. There's, I think we have, at last count, I think we have 18 or 19 nonprofits that are associated with us, and then a handful of uh, bloggers and podcasters. Oh, wow. Like Gam Atheist. Like mm. Gam Atheist, exactly. He's, he's one of our artist affiliates. How much more attractive would a t-shirt like this make me? Uh, exponentially, <laughs> I would have to say. I mean, I'm biased slightly. It's a very, very sleek design. I'm actually wearing one right now, which I didn't plan, so you can't see because this isn't a video, but I happen to be wearing one right now. Yeah, and I can't keep my hands yeah. off. Shannon, <laughs> i got to put a partition up. <laughs> well, it's uh, no doubt working wonders for the imaginations of both of the listeners who are currently tuned in <laughs> right now. <laughs> All right, guys, so where can we find out more? Uh, BeSecular.com, obviously, that's our website. You can find out... Uh, we have our blogs on there where we uh, spill our thoughts, but we also have all of our products on there and a list of all of our current events and affiliates. Uh, we're on Twitter, at BeSecular. My personal Twitter is at Mark Nebo, and Shannon's is Secular Sunshine. Our vice president, A.J. Johnson, is at Happiest Atheist on Twitter, and the Facebook page is forward slash BeSecular Bracelets. So not just T-shirts? What else can we get? Oh no, we have bands like the like the Livestrong bands, except for they're black and oh, they say so, be secular. Oh, thank goodness, because uh, I thought you were, you know, bands like Nickelback or or something like no, that. No, <laughs> no bracelets, and then we have uh, bumper stickers and stickers and stuff like that. And we have um, we have t-shirts, but we also have uh, ladies' tanks and ladies' cut V-necks as well. Brilliant! I will have to get my hands on a couple. I think you'd look great in one of the tank tops. We want to get you to send us a picture. <laughs> now, do you do? 
Here's a, here's one for a friend of the show. Well, not even a friend. Let's call him an acquaintance of the show. He goes by the handle at religious t, the religious tourist. This month he's a he's a Sikh. And oh wow! Do you do a B secular turban? Oh man, that would you know what though? If we had a, a Sikh that wanted to be involved with us, we would try to come up with something because that would be. That would be awesome. awesome. That would be really awesome. <laughs> yes, it would. All right, let's get the uh, marketing team onto that immediately. <laughs> <laughs> right, guys. Well, thank you for coming on, spreading the good word. Oh, thanks for having us. We're uh, this is our first interview uh, in Australia, so I feel good about it that. It is, yeah. I'd like to say that's a big thing. <laughs> I, I, we think it is. We're, we're honored. We're it's a big thing to us. Yeah. Well, it's very exciting for me. <laughs> well, we can't wait for you to come to the States. I'm sure we'll see you at a convention. Yes, you'll be able to tell who I am by my B-Secular t-shirt. Or, oh, yeah. or after the last, um, the last Raygate episode, I might have to get a B-Testicular t-shirt. Uh, <laughs> poor Ray. Righto, guys. Thank you very much and take care. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, this is Shelley Siegel. I'm very excited to tell you about my new album, which is going to be coming out in May. And I've set up a pre-order on Pledge Music. And you can come to pledgemusic.com slash projects slash Shelley Siegel. And you can check out some of the other experiences that I have on offer, like a birthday call, or I can record a cover song of your choice. And you can have access to kind of exclusive updates that will tell you about how the release is going access to photos from the album and the artwork before everyone else can see it and yeah just would love to share the journey and experience with you find me on pledgemusic.com and let's make some music together heard mentalists hear me good news we've got a births deaths and marriages segment and it's a birth it's not a death not a marriage And by all means, uh, if you'd like to be mentioned in this segment in passing on the show, then just send me an email, adam at herdmentalitypodcast.com. Marv the Martian, so that's at M-A-R-V-T-H-3, the number three, Martian, as it sounds, has just manufactured himself a tiny human. She has no name, as far as I know, he didn't tell me, so I've decided to call her Raylene. So Marv, congratulations, well done. This month's campaign, so every $5 tither to the show or greater, gets a free hand-drawn cow that's worth absolutely nothing. So to the people who have joined in and uh, contributed towards the show, I thank you very, very much. Some people who are on the $2 tithing have upped their tithing to $5 a month. And uh, at that value, they also get bonus afterlife insurance, which is something that's intangible, but I can assure you, you do get it. Now I've got some bad news. There was meant to be a Raygate skit on this episode. However, Peter Bogosian came on, did a wonderful Raygate skit with us. But in a sign from God, Audacity, the editing software I use, packed it in. So I suspect real Ray's prayers were answered on that one. Sad face. In other news, I'm off to Melbourne. I'm going to be an MC at a friend's wedding. So I will be in Melbourne on Sunday the 9th at 6pm at the Young and Jackson's Pub, which is just opposite Federation Square. So any herd mentalists or any Twitter people who'd like to come and have a beer, by all means, I'll see you there.